0: since then and the hotels have actually got a little bit better along the way I must say and uh, my wife and I had journeyed up and down the country, I flew up to Edinburgh, I tried to come home and couldn't make it home, they cancelled it, I stayed in Edinburgh and then we got down to Exeter and we drove up from Exeter, oh it's been an absolute nightmare but good, God is good and we're here and um, as Carl said um, the worship wasn't as long as you thought it was but it could go badly wrong now. Because believe you me, if I get going, I can talk. I used to be a competitive power lifter, representing Great Britain for a good number of years. And when I packed that up, my wife said, you'll now be speaking for Great Britain. And uh, one of the things I do, I actually travel around extensively speaking in prisons. I was in a prison in Scotland on Thursday uh, and I was speaking there to a group of guys and about four of them had finished their sentence and I was still carrying on talking. So, if you do feel you need a little sugar fix, go out and get yourself a cake, bring it back in, and uh, I won't mind that at all. As I said, my name's Arthur White, you can tell from my delicate tones and from the introduction, uh, my roots are in the East End of London. Uh, I was brought up in a council estate in Essex, so I'm a sort of East End Essex boy. As my kids now call me, I'm an East End Essex old boy. I've got to watch the cable, how much have I got here? I could destroy the worship band and everything, yeah. That's good. And um, I now live in Cornwall. My wife and I, Jackie, we moved down to Cornwall about 10 years ago. Uh, they can't understand a word I say down there, which is great. I can't understand them either. But uh, we now live in Cornwall. Um, we, are, we have two children. I've got a daughter's coming up to 38. She doesn't like me telling people that. She's struggling me in uh, 40 years of age. My son is 35. Uh, and we had two little granddaughters, little little Sarah They're the little people. I'm not, I'm not sure what they belong to in, in the church, but they, and we've got two granddaughters. So I see the grandkids every day, which is lovely. And uh, I travel, uh, as I say, extensively around this country. Indeed, I've had the privilege of travelling around the world, sharing what God's done in my life. Now, before I continue, I want to say I am not an educated man. I am not a scholar or an intellect. I'm just an ordinary guy. But I happen to serve an extraordinary God. And what I want to share with you this morning is a little bit about my life. And this isn't just to big myself up, this is to try and explain to you where I was, where I am today, and something about the journey along the way. So I'm a very basic man. I'm a carpenter by trade, I'm a builder by profession. And uh, I do tell people that I'm actually a minister now. That's a struggle for a lot of people to accept, but I am. It took me a long time to get that qualification. And uh, I actually finished my, my papers, as it were. We was out in Canada, wasn't we? For our 60th uh, anniversary, our 60th birthday, we was out in Canada. And I finished my, my, all my papers out there. And uh, I'm now a minister. I don't lead a church. Nobody would follow me anyway. And uh, someone once said, I wouldn't follow you down to the garden path. But I like sharing with people what God's done in my life. I can't deny what has happened in my life. Whether you choose to believe is entirely up to you. I'm not here to try and convert anyone. I'm just here to share with you my life uh, and also to share with you the most important thing in my life, and that is my faith and my trust in Jesus Christ. As I say, i come out of the East End of London. Uh, I'm married. Jackie uh, is my wife. She's sitting in front of you, and uh, Jackie and I have been together now. Actually, we met when we were 14 Kids? We got engaged at 17, and we got married at 19. So we've been married now for 44 years this year, isn't it? Uh, apart from a little hiccup in the middle. So I'll tell you about that as we go along. And uh, as I say, we've, uh, we've worked a lot together. Jackie and I actually do a little bit of a double act as well. She's got the other side of the story. So if you want to know a little bit more about me and about Jackie, please... Uh, speak to her afterwards. I uh, told you I'm a builder, or I was a builder. I started uh, building a number of years ago. I had, materialistically speaking, everything that you would want in life. I had a successful and happy marriage. We did have disagreements and arguments, but it was always hurtful. <laughs> There's not actually a lot of room between us, is there? So I've got to be careful what I say I had a successful business, in the mid 80s I was turning over a good few million quid on my own. I'm just a kid off of the council estate and please try and remember this as I'm speaking, I had nothing when I left school, no money, no uh, loans, no no silver spoons, we had no privileges. Jackie also come from uh, the council estate, the other side of the council estate, she said it was the best side but that was always a debate. And uh, we worked as kids, and we worked hard when we left the store also. And and I worked hard in the building, uh, and I built a successful business. Jackie also helped me run that business, doing the finance uh, and the accounts of that. I was turning over a few million quid in the mid-80s. I had men working for me. We had a big office. We had a big house. We had a villa in Spain and a nice Jag. Jack had a little sports car. I had a few quid in my pocket. Life wasn't going bad for me. I was good. I worked for everything I ever owned. I also had a successful sporting career. I was a power lifter for a number of years. I'm a little bit uh, different in size these days. I'm probably about three stone lighter. Uh, and I'm a few inches shorter as well. And I'll tell you how that came about as well later. And uh, I competed for 30 years. 1976. Uh, to 2006 when I retired at 56 years of age and during that 30 year period I represented Great Britain for 27 years. I was an international lifter for 27 years. I was never out of the top three in the world for 27 years. Every international I went to I came away with some form of medal and obviously every international I went to I wanted gold. And I came away with a few of them as well. I was nine times British champion. Six times European champion. Four times world champion. I won the Open twice. I then went into the over 40s. The Masters one, politely they called it. And I won that. I went into the over 50s, the Masters 2. They was getting a little bit more politer on this one. And I seriously considered the Masters 3, the over 60s. My spirit was strong. Unfortunately, the body was breaking up. So I retired at 56, undefeated British European, uh, British European and world champion. I was in the Guinness Book of Records between 1982, I think of 1992, when they published British and European records then. Uh, and I broke in excess of 100 British, European, Commonwealth and world records. And I still hold a number of those, the longest one that's been standing has now stood since 1982, that's 33 years. No one's broken that. Uh, if someone does break it now, I'm certainly not going to make any more comeback. You're not too impressed with this, are you? <laughs> it's better than Chesterfield United's done, isn't it? <laughs> Powerlifting. that was my God. This is what I worshipped. Everything and everyone took second place to it. Now, some of you may be thinking, I don't actually see him lifting too many weights. I was in the gym a little while ago, and uh, there was a, a, a little bit of a sort of seminar going on in this gym, and someone was selling some protein supplements and uh, giving away T-shirts. And a young girl uh, was promoting it as well, and she came over to me. I was just sitting down, um, listening to this guy talking about weightlifting and training and stuff. And this young girl came over to me and gave me a T-shirt, which was very nice. And she said, it's so nice to see an old boy in the gym. I wasn't sure where to take that. You know? But it was quite complimentary anyway. And, and, and I was training a little while ago and someone came up to me, also in another gym. Rolling, they come and come up and said, excuse me, Pops, when you finish, let us know. And I thought, Pops, I'm not sure if I'm with this. But I admit, I'm not younger, I'm not a young man anymore. And uh, I don't need to compete anymore, but I still enjoy training. I've got a little gym in my garage. I go out into the garage, I put my big body warmer on, I bubble out, I put Rocky on, and I'm in a world of my own. But power lifting was my job. That is what I worshipped from being a young man. Everyone and everything took second place. So if you have any doubt believe in what I do, I'm just going to show you a short DVD. Some of you may be totally bored on this, uh, but I'm looking forward to it because it's good to see it on a big screen. Anyway, so this is me lifting over the years. Is that all right? And I'll talk you through some of it. Together. Then you've got a third exercise called the deadlift, That's 750 pounds, 340 kilos. I a little bit more hair there. Actually, I a lot more hair there. This is the second one, this is 360 kilos, just short uh, 800 pounds. And then the third one, this is 380 kilos. £857 and this is a British and European record that still stands, so I'll beat this. So that was 308 kilos of pipe in black. They add the three lifts together, the total is the biggest, and whoever's got the biggest total is the one that actually wins the competition. This is 1989. It's gone on a few years here. I'm actually competing at the British Championship. I actually won the British title here. The man sitting down putting bandages round his knee, he won the British title at a lighter body weight. So he's champion and I'm a champion, but they also have a formula for making, finding out who is the champion of champions. There's a formula so I can actually compete against the light men. Me and Bill are tra- training now for this. We have to, to go into the deadlift. I'm British champion, no one can beat him. Bill's British champion, no one can beat him. But we want to beat each other on formula. My wife right, Jackie is sitting just in front of the platform, calculating all this out. I need it to equal my best ever of all time to actually get the champion the champion's trophy. So I'm now going for 380 kilos. You don't lift this sort of weight too often in your career. I'm having another go at it. I haven't attempted this for a number of years. 380 kilo. So my coaching at Whitey was quite happy about it. And so was I. <laughs> and this is my son. Hey James, he was nine years old then. He's now 35. He stands about this, so we Shakespeare about a little bit now. So I won that day, the champion champions, and this is the trophy we got. It's a nice bronze trophy. There's James. We then move on. Open in 1992. Uh, years have gone on. There I'm in my porches now, so I'm, I'm now competing uh, as a master. Uh, and on this particular day, as a master, because I've got a world record, deadly. So that was a new world record that day. I was weighing just under. At that particular point, and then a month later, this is the European and World Championships. Um, It was held somewhere up here in the north of England, Stone in Staffordshire. Stone in Staffordshire, that was it. This was the biggest single competition I've ever been in. So it was a combined European and World Championships, two titles at stake. Um, I was a lighter body weight, I'd gone down a little bit in body weight, so I was weighing about 15 stone 10. And uh, this was another world record. So I got a new world record this day. I won the European Championship. I won the World Championship. I broke 16 British European Commonwealth and World Records. Potentially, probably one of the best competitive days of my life, but it was certainly one of the worst and darkest days of my life. And if you just As I come off, this this goes slow, Uh, the film has stopped, you'll see a front facial picture of me. Try and keep this memory, keep this picture in your memory, keep the date, 1992. As strong and as powerful I was on that day, my head was mashed, I was in a mess. We plough on now from 1992 to 2005 still competing, I've now gone into the Masters 2. You can see I've lost the hair. Still squatting, still bench pressing. Still deadlifting. So I retired in 2006, British, European, 12. Heavyweight, Masters, powerlifting champion, I was undefeated, but my records still stand. That was me competing. Everything I did, everyone took second place, took my powerlifting. I can remember the day my daughter was born, it was the 12th of June 1977. We was living in Essex then. The British Championships were in Birmingham. So it was a straight journey up the M1. Uh, Jackie accompanied me like she did on many occasions, watching me lifting. And Jackie was eight months pregnant. She came along. The doctor said, oh, you've got no problems. It's your first child. You're you're not going to be early. You have plenty of time. It's a long time ago, remember this. Nearly 40 years ago. So I'm competing. I'm in third place. I then called for a world record the whole hall we was in Birmingham, to, uh, Birmingham it went silent. Who's this young fella, new on the scene, going for a world record? I was 90 kilos in body weight. They called for the doctor. Now, I thought one of the other guys had got injured, but it wasn't. It was my wife, she went into labour. And at the time, I have to admit, I wasn't very happy about it. I thought it was actually quite inconsiderate of her. <laughs> I didn't understand these women's things. All I was interested in was powerlifting. But anyway, we left the British Championships, heading down the motorway, coming home. She's moaning because she's got the cramps. I'm moaning because I'm cramping. We turned off the motorway. We found a hospital, and I'm not exaggerating, you can ask her this. In five minutes, she's had the baby. I looked at my watch and thought, can I get back to Birmingham? <laughs> I left my wife that night. Went home. The following morning, all the in laws have turned up. Quite rightly, they want to see Jackie and they want to see my new baby. I've forgotten what hospital she was in. Now at the time, we didn't have the internet connection, social media, iPods, iPads or any of any description. It wasn't as easy to find her as it could be now. So I left Jackie Sunday night, I found her Tuesday night. And I wasn't the most popular of husbands. Not that I didn't love her or my daughter, it's just that powerlifting was occupying my mind so much. I actually thought, this is good, she's going to be banged up for 10 days. In those days, you did stay in the hospital for a little while. So I thought that's good. Ten days in hospital, up and train every day, out with the legs, out with a nice fit Chinese after training. It was a good. My my wife had had another another child. Our boy was born a few years later. I've probably forgotten about that one as well. This is what occupied my life. Everything and everyone took second place. Powerlifting was my God. I knew nothing of God. I didn't go to church. I knew nothing about Christians. I probably then was a god hater. Didn't think twice about it. I didn't like Christians. Didn't know any really. My old brother, was Cliff Richard. Never liked his singing then. I don't like his singing now, to be honest with you. But from what I understand, he's quite a nice sort of fella. Actually, he doesn't do a very nice job of red wine though. He's got a he's got, he's got a vineyard in Portugal, he's not very nice And my idea of, of Christian men, I thought all Christian men were wimps anyway. Dodgy men wearing dodgy sandals. Some of them wear socks with sandals. The most uncool. Even I know that. I'm not a, I'm not a fashion uh, guru, but uh, I mean, Carl's pretty cool. You know, T-shirt, nice and and uh, And is it, Dan? Dan's church. Yeah, a cool bloke, isn't it? You know? Don't wear socks and sandals. You have to be careful, because someone's doing it. <laughs> you have to be careful. And he's put his feet under that. Now the bass player looks cool. Why have you got five strings on your bass guitar? six. Yeah, I've never seen five strings. It sounds good, though. Yeah, I like that. I like the bass guitar. My idea of a Christian lady. Now, this is only my perception years ago, not now, obviously. But it was years ago. My idea of a Christian lady, happy, happy. Tangerine bashing. Hallelujah, Jesus. I said this at a tent outreach once about happy, clappy, tangerine bashing, ladies. They don't really do that, but this is my conception. And the next act on after us was these women, all dressed up in white robe. (laughs) (laughs) That's gone down like a tonne of bricks, hasn't it? But this was only my conception. I found it very strange. On a Sunday morning, people happy, clapped, shaking my hand. And some blokes wanted to give me a hug. I'm not really into that, Carl, am I? You know, I need to know a bloke very well before I give him a little cuddle. You know? Prior to that, anyone got into the clinches with me, I would have given him a slip on the chin. I found it very difficult going to church. I remember the first time I went to church. I had a pair of shades on, black eyes, split lips. I mean, I've gone in late because I don't want to be early and everyone sees me, I've gone in late but I didn't realise that the seats were getting filled up, so this fella says to me, there's a seat right in the middle there so I've gone there, sort of in the middle halfway up, then the worship starts, now I didn't realise that worship was like, I mean it's a band and you play all these instruments what's that box, who plays the box Wait, what is it is it meant to substitute a set of drums can you not fold this so I mean, it's, it's a terrific sound, though, isn't it? I never knew anything like this, you see. And they set me down in the middle. Then the worshipper started up and he really went off on one. He really was banging it out. And oh, really Afterwards, I got approached by the, the guy that was leading the church because he thought I was having what they call a quiet moment with God. (laughs) I had a hangover and this this worship speakers like that were banging in my ear and I thought what am I doing in this place? That was my conception of church and God. I knew nothing about it. It wasn't brought up in the church. I was a strong independent man stand on my own. If I needed to sort the problem out I was a man sort of, nobody crossed me, obviously, and and, and my principles, were I wouldn't cross another man either. But this was the way I thought then. Power was my God. That is what I worshipped, that is what I wanted to do. I wanted to be the best, and I would do anything to become the best. I believe I became addicted to training. I want to be in the gym day after day after day. I loved it. I loved the banter with the guys. I loved the weights on my back. I loved, I just loved it. But you cannot train every day. It's impossible. You need, you, you need to recuperate. A baby only grows when it's asleep. A baby doesn't grow when it's running around on the floor. That is a fact. A baby only grows when you sleep. You need to rest and recuperate. I wanted to train every day. Now up to this point in my life, I was a relatively young man, I never smoked, never ever smoked in my life, never seen the sense of it, nobody can convince me that smoking is any good for you. A bit of grass, in a bit of paper, setting light to it, sounds a bit crazy to me anyway. I never smoked, drank very little, and the only reason I didn't drink is because I was competing regularly. Alcohol destroys muscle, so if you're losing it every weekend and you're training most of the week, you're actually counteracting what you're doing. So I drank very little. Got no problem with drinking. We had a nice bottle of red, didn't we, last night? A bottle of white, some cheese and biscuits. I love it. But I'm competing every day. I'm training every day. I'm competing regularly. So alcohol was not in my uh, way of thinking. And I certainly never took drugs. I was clean. I could beat... The the Americans were really big into it at that particular time. And some of the Eastern European. And I took great pleasure in beating them, knowing that I was clean. But... I believe I became addicted to training, and like any addiction you need to fuel it, I needed to find something. I found out from a group of guys that were training, they were taking steroids, I thought if it's alright for them, it'd be alright for me. So I started taking just a few, just to give me that little bit. But once you start on that slope, believe you me, you're on a slippery one. Now, taking steroids, is anyone here, by the way, on steroids, of any description, medically or otherwise? Don't have to, I'm not trying to embarrass anybody. My mum was on steroids for a good number of years. My mum actually died a a couple of years ago, and uh, she was taking steroids. They're good, they help the body recuperate, that's what they're made for. They can be given for many, many reasons. But if you've had an illness, an operation... You will have some form of steroid to help the body recuperate. My mum uh, had cancer, plus a dodgy heart, and all sorts of things, and they used to help my mum just sort of keep going. And uh, we cared for my mum, by the way, for a good number of years before she died. Uh, and I travelled back a few years ago from Cornwall to look after mum for a couple of weeks. And I phoned my sister, because my sister was my mum's main carer. Uh, and I said, Gerald, I said, I'm really worried about mum and all these steroids. She said, why is that? I said, well, I've been here for about 10 minutes, and she's beaten me three times at arm wrestling. <laughs> My mum looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger on the zimmer front. But, like most things in life, the misuse and abuse causes a problem. As a young man, you will produce something like 30 or 40 milligrams of testosterone. Something like that. It's a fact. That's what makes men slightly stronger than women. Not all women, of course, not all men, but average. And that 30 or 40 milligrams of testosterone that you produce is what gets you through your day of work, your day of sport, whatever you do in life. I ended up taking 500 to 600 milligrams a day. My mum was on maximum... 12 milligrams maximum to keep her alive. Most times she was taking 5 milligrams. I'm pumping into myself five to 600 milligrams of steroids of some description. I even started taking animal steroids. I had a friend of mine who lived uh, in uh, down south and he phoned me one day and he said, oh, he said I've got some veterinary steroids. They're very cheap and they're very powerful two things that appealed to me. I ain't got to pay a lot of money, and they give you a bit of power. So I started injecting, injecting myself with animal steroids. It said on the bottle, one mil a week for a horse. One millimetre, one milliliter a week. A tiny little injector like that for a horse. I was taking 10 mil a day for myself. Now those particular steroids didn't do a lot of good for me. But I did win the Grand National twice. <laughs> <laughs> the truth was that my drug addiction was now controlling my life. I'm fueling my body. I'm working hard. I'm training hard. The team was setting in. I then needed something to give me an extra little kick, a little bit of a boost. I'm happy now just having a cup of coffee now and again, just to give me a little bit of a weight. But that's about it. I started taking uh, speed, amphetamines, salt, and then cocaine. And I had a steroid and cocaine addiction that nearly ended my life. And when I say this, I am not being melodramatic. I was putting cocaine on my cornflakes, in my tea, up my nose, in my mouth. I would take it any way I could. I needed that buzz, that kick. One of the side effects though of steroids, and there are many, is that it changes your psychological outlook on life. Obviously what you're doing is injecting or taking by tablet a a synthetic hormone. Your body produces hormones naturally, men and women. And if you then start taking something synthetically, your body shuts down its own production of hormones because it's now being fed. So you get an imbalance. One of the things in uh, lifting and in the gyms, we used to call it roid rage, men will get angry. Now, if you've got a young man who's got a little bit of a temper on him and you start giving him more testosterone, he's going to have a bigger temper. That never really was my uh, thing, that's for sure, but I started looking at life a bit different. I was once a husband, a businessman, a father. I was a uh, governor of a local school, I had respect, I had some self-respect, but I was now thinking differently. I had an adulterous affair with a young woman, I left my wife, I deserted my children, I lost my business, my homes, my cars, my money, I wanted to be in the gym more than I wanted to be at business meetings, I lost control of everything and everyone around me. In four years of madness, I lost everything that I'd ever worked for. I thought I was in control. My drug addiction was controlling me. I thought I was strong, independent. I was now living a violent life fueled by drugs. I lost my business. I started to work as a nightclub bouncer. In my day, they were called bouncers. Today, they're called security staff. And you'll see them won't you in, in pubs and clubs. And they have a little badge up here. Uh, and and they have to, you have to go on a four-day training course now to be a... Uh, a security man. They get trained in conflict management. Conflict management. I was working in a club and a bloke came up to me, he said uh, do you want to work tonight? It was Christmas Eve. He said I'll give you double bubble. Do you know what double bubble is? Twice the money. He said we'll give you double bubble. Colin had a broken nose, chewed up here one eye, split lip And I remember looking at him thinking, I don't want to work on the door if I end up looking like you. (laughs) I worked on the nightclub doors for years. I wasn't a contender for the heavyweight title. Let me tell you this now. I wasn't. But I was now living a violent life, fuelled by drugs. I started to run an illegal debt collecting business. And this wasn't governed by the Office of Fair Trade, if you understand my meaning. You never got a letter from me saying you've got seven days to pay up. I'd kick your door in three o'clock in the morning, drag you down the stairs, stick a 12-inch starters knife at your throat. Nine times out of ten, I got what I went for. I was carrying then a 12-inch starters knife strapped to my arm, 38 Beretta in my pocket, knuckle duster in this pocket, two club hammers under my seat, pick up angle in the back. I had more tools than I had hands. I'm living a permanently paranoid, fearful Violent life fueled by my drug addiction. As hard and as tough as I thought I was, fear and paranoia were my best friends for four years. I lived a permanent life of fear. I lived a permanent life of paranoia. Who was coming after me? What people were thinking of me? I'm wondering what you like thinking of me. I may mean, never get asked back to Chesterfield. I remember one night. I was living in a bed sitting in the east end of London. It was a horrible place. I'd gone and got a Chinese takeaway. You got Chinese takeaways in Chesterfield? Yeah, it's nice Chesterfield, isn't it? It's lovely up there, isn't it? About 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night, I'm walking back to the flat. I've got my little bag of takeaway. You got the little pram bags as well? You get your little takeaway? I'm walking along. It's dark, it's late at night, and I can hear someone running from behind. Figured in my head it was a man standing quite a heavy foot. As he was getting closer to me, he was getting faster, got right on my shoulder. I bent down, turned round, I hit him in the stomach, I then bashed him with my chicken chow men, beef, went everywhere. This poor fella's laying on the floor now. He's got sweet and sour on him, bit of egg fried (laughs) rice. The poor soul was running for the bus. (laughs) I picked him up, dusted him off, seriously, he was covered in it. Put him on the bus, give the driver a couple of quid. I said, here, take this there, I'll give up. That was the madness and the paranoia that I was living in. In one of my sane moments, I went to see a man who was a drug counselor. This man also happened to be a Christian. Didn't know that, weren't too bothered about it. As I said earlier, I didn't think too much about God or Christians. I was probably, as I said, a God-hater. Because I would have said then, like a lot of people will say today, well, if there's a God in this world, what's he doing in my life? I don't see God at work, and especially when you switch the telly on or read the newspapers, it's a question. What is God doing? What is happening? And I would have said the same. There's no God in my life. My wife and I are apart. I'm a drug addict. I've lost everything. God ain't doing nothing for me. This man didn't preach at me didn't patronise me, didn't talk down to me. He just said something very simply: He said, you need to choose. And it doesn't matter where you are in life, whether you're young, whether you're an old granddad like me, whether you're a man, woman, you're a leader of the church, you're part of the worship man, no matter where you are in life, you need to choose. And there's some easy choices. Last night we were sitting down. Do I have a glass of red or do I have a glass of white? I like a glass of white. I know Carl likes the gloves or red and he chooses a good red one. No, I'll stick with a white. It's an easy choice. But there's some serious ones. And I had some serious choices to make. I remember standing in the car park in the east end of London. It was a place called Spitfield Fruit and Veg Market. It's right next door to where the Olympic Village is now in London. Uh, and I've been out debt collecting. I earned a few quid as well that night, I remember but I'd also got turned over as well that night. I remember standing in the car park, I had a pair of trainers on, tracky bottoms, I had a singlet vest, a knife strapped to my arm, gun in my pocket, knuckle duster, I was chalked up to the eyeballs. I even had a ponytail. Cool, would I like to grow a ponytail now? <laughs> the trouble is when you get old, hair starts to grow in places you don't want it. <laughs> Why do your eyebrows get pushy and then come out your ear? Why did that happen? I can't get it up here anymore. <laughs> I remember standing in this car park. I was not a kid either. I was a 42, 43 year old bloke. And I'm standing there thinking, what a mess my life was in. Why has happened? When is this going to end? Because my life, as I said, was close to it. And I'm not being melodramatic. A doctor told me in 1992, just after that competition... Now remember that one, 1992. I won the British, the European title, the world title. I broke every record that con- you could conceivably think of. I was lifting phenomenally. I was built like the proverbial outhouse. But that night, probably about six or eight hours after that film was taken, I tried to take my own life. Tried to cut my throat. You see, my drug addiction led me into bouts of depression. That's not a nice illness if you know anyone that's ever suffered from it. I tried to cut my own throat, drown myself, overdose and crash the car. That night, I had pains in my chest. I went to see a doctor, x-rayed my chest, showed my heart the size of a small football. He said, if you continue, you will die. And I've actually known 10 men die from steroid and cocaine abuse. One of the better known men was a guy called John Paul Sigmundson. He was a world's strongest man four times. John Paul Sigmundson stood 6 foot 5, he weighed 25 stone. I'm 5 foot 9, and I'm weighing just under 15 stone. So he's a little bit bigger than me. Four times the world's strongest man. Training in the gym, collapsed on the floor. time his mates got to him, he was dead. They did a post mortem on him, found his heart had exploded. There wasn't a valve attached to it. Another side effect of steroids is hardening of the arteries. My mum was on steroids, so they give her um, aspirin to thin her blood out just a little bit, so the blood flows a bit easier around the body. But if your arteries start to close, then you're having trouble circulating blood. Further uh, investigation on John found he, he was full of steroids and cocaine. So his heart was now working overtime. Any stimulant makes the heart pump faster than it should. So he pumped the blood out of his heart, quicker than it should, it hit the blockage came back, backfired basically, he was dead before he hit the floor. And I've known 10 men died, the youngest being 21. And recently I read in the papers that were was two 19-year-old boys died, steroid and cocaine abuse. Two lads in Liverpool, 17 and 19, steroids and cocaine again, are now on colostomy bags because they've injected themselves, uh, the, the infection in their bowels, 17 and 19 years of age. But this is the madness of my life. This doctor said, you will die if you continue. I tried to take my own life. And I was making a lot of enemies. You don't live that sort of life without making enemies. And there were men in the East End that were going to end my life. And I'm not being melodramatic when I say that. 23 years ago, my life was that close to ending. I stood in this car park. I was on my own. I wasn't in a nice theatre like this with nice worship bands and a nice cup of coffees and cakes afterwards to eat. I was on my own in the East End, freezing cold March morning. I just stood there and said, "Well, if there's such a thing as a God, come and sort me out. Now there was no booming voice, no choir of angels or the opening of the heavens. But I wanted that to happen. You see, I wanted a revelation. I wanted something to touch me. But something did happen because I'd lost the capacity to love and be loved. I wouldn't let anyone near me, and I certainly wouldn't show any affection affection to anyone. I lived this life of paranoia. That fear and that paranoia left me that morning. So let me tell you, as I continue, what I believe. So you know where I stand in my life. As I said, I'm not an intellect, I'm not a scholar. If you want to debate... Uh, a a verse from the Bible. You go and speak to the church leader or Carl. He's a pretty clever fellow. I don't understand everything in life for sure, but let me tell you what I believe. I believe that God created heaven and earth. I do not believe we're here by mistake. My mum died at 86 years of age. I do not believe her life was just gone. It was pointless. There's nothing left. I don't believe we're here by mistake. I don't believe we come from monkeys either. Now I was present at the two births of my two children and I didn't really think too much about it. I have to be honest. Because all I wanted to do was get down to the gym. Another excuse, wasn't it? Get out, get down the gym. wife's arm. But ten years ago, in the house that we live in, my daughter had her first child. What's your excuse, Dan? What's your wife's name? Grace. Grace, could you come over a minute, please, and bring little baby? What's the baby's name? Elijah. Yeah. N- Elijah. Oh, what a lovely name. Better than Arthur, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Don't go embarrass you. Within ten minutes of my granddaughter being born, I was holding in my hands. Look at him. Look. What a lovely You're going to be just like me. <laughs> Which is an absolute blessing. <laughs> I remember looking at Kate. And I remember thinking, look, look. Little toes, little fingers. Look at them eyes, look. Perfect, thank you. It don't come from a monkey. It's impossible. It's impossible. I mean, there's a mum. I remember looking at Kate thinking, no. She, she can't come from... I know a mum. This is my daughter. I know a mum's mum who I've been married to for 44 years. It's impossible. So I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe he is the son of God. I believe in his birth. I believe in his life. I believe in his death. I believe in his resurrection when he was raised from the dead. And I believe his ascension when he went back to heaven. Again, I don't understand it all. I really don't. I don't understand everything that goes on here in the Bible. I love it. And I remember standing there thinking, this is absolutely fantastic. Whether you choose to believe, though, is your choice. I'm convinced that there's no one in this church that's going to try and convert you or Bible bash you. That is the freedom that we have. Wonderful freedom that we have. But what no one in this room can do is argue the truth of my life. Regardless of what you think, Regardless of what you think of my story, regardless of what you think of me, and regardless of what you believe. Because this is the truth. From that moment, I chose to call on God, put my trust in Jesus Christ, my life started to change. Jackie and I have been apart for four years. We got remarried in 1993. We got baptized together in 1993. If you are thinking of being baptized, believe you me, go and do it. Don't worry where you are. Don't think, oh, I've got to get my life in order. I've got to do this. I've got to be older. Or I'm too old. Go and get baptised. It's biblical. It says it's in there. Put your trust in Jesus. Get baptised. That's it. It's finished. On you go. I have the love and respect of my children. I have everything that I need in my life. i would lost everything. There's plenty of things I want. I happen to like. BMW. Is there anyone here that runs a BMW dealership? No. I've tried that so often. I said this in the prison a while ago, though, and the fellow come up to me afterwards, he said, I'm out in about a year's time. I would like to support you. I'm thinking, this is quite nice." He said... I've got a mate of mine who's in the motors and I'm thinking, I know what's coming, he said, I'll get a BMW for it. And I thought myself, I can imagine this transit man pulling up a little trailer, dropping off a BMW, no number plates, no, and off he goes. <laughs> now is that what do I do? It hasn't happened. But anyway, I do have everything that I need in my life. But you have to choose. All of us have a choice. As I say, no matter where we are in life, you have a choice. You have a choice this morning. You have a choice this morning, if for the first time, to ask Jesus Christ into your life. You may choose to, you may not to. We may never meet again. Some of you may be pleased about that. The choice is yours. You may... You may have known about God, you may have heard about Jesus but you've never made that step. Perhaps the step is this morning. Whether to speak to Carl or or, Dan the leadership or myself or my wife Jackie. You may be thinking, well do I need to be baptised? Yes you do. Biblical. Choice is yours. You may be searching for a lot in life. You may be searching for that pot of gold. I was searching for that pot of gold. I won a lot of gold. And a gold medal, for the British championships. I won every gold you could get. European champion. Oh, this is a good one. I'll leave you to have this, oh, this in case I get a tummy upset. It's too much cheese last night. There's a nice goal, one South Africa 2005, my last one title. I've got a lot here, I've got some gold here, and oh, this was a good one. Three gold medals, I won in Argentina. They even elected me into the Hall of Fame. Can you imagine that? What a gold medal that was. Hall of Fame, 1989. I chased every bit of gold that you could want. I chased it in my. Lifting career, I chased it in my personal life. Every time I travelled, I would bring back a piece of gold. South Africa, I went into a gold mine. I went into a gold mine and got this gold out. I went into a diamond mine, bought diamonds. Have you still got that? It says in Revelation, I counsel you to buy from me gold. Refined in the fire that you may be rich. Refined in the fire. They mean nothing. Absolutely nothing to me. I don't know if you've read the Bible and, and Paul writes it in Acts, or of the lines of everything is pointless. Everything means nothing. They truly mean nothing to me. I love having them. I love powerlifting. I still love training. They mean nothing. Because it says there, I can get pure gold find in the fire. God's God. It says in the Bible that I am adopted into his family. You are adopted into his family. If you don't know the Lord. you can be adopted into his family. It says also in there that I am co-heirs to the throne of God. That's what the Bible tells me. If I'm a co-heir to the throne of God, that makes me a brother of Jesus Christ. I believe he's the Prince of Peace. I become a Prince more do you want people have said well I want God to speak to me I want God to do this what more can God do for you he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him would not perish and have eternal life I don't know what eternity is like I don't know what heaven's like let me tell you something ladies and gentlemen I know what hell's like I lived four years in hell fighting every day for my life Seeing my wife and my children destroyed by the foolish acts I did, becoming a drug addict. I chose to ask Jesus Christ into my life, and he turned my life around. Hasn't been easy. Let me tell you, life ain't easy. If anyone ever says they giving given your life, is going to be sunshine and roses, they're not telling you the truth. 23 years after I stopped my drug addiction, I'm still suffering from it. I've had eight major operations on my legs. I've got false knees. I was just about getting out of that chair. You would have seen me getting dressed in the morning? She laughs her head off. Can't get me socks on, me boxers on. Don't even think about it, girls. It's horrible. <laughs> I've had four operations on my heart. They've stopped my heart now eight times to try and get it back into gear. I've ruined it. I'm 64, my heart's 84. Doctor said, your heart's like a piece of leather. I'm waiting for some results now. Waiting for some results now. They think I've got lung cancer. They joked a few weeks ago that I was dead. He's worried that I may not make the summer, ladies. I'll be in the gathering. Don't worry, son. I might have a set of wings there. Don't you? Don't know. I'll be back. I believe it takes a stronger man or woman to take that step. I was one of the strongest men ever, and that's his record. If ain't me talking, this is a record. I was one of the most powerful men ever. I did things before other powerlifters and strong even thinking about it. Whether you're young or whether you're old, rich or poor, man or woman, boy or girl, you need to choose, and the choice is yours. You could choose like some of my mates. You're dead. Some of you may think, this morning you might be doctors and nurses, you may be young students, never done the things I've done. Some of you think, well, you needed God. That's for sure. But it also tells me that, and I take great comfort with this, it says everyone has fallen short of God's standard. Everyone. It says everyone needs a saviour. Everyone. Not just me being a bad boy. He says in there, even calling your brother a fool, you're in danger of hellfire. I call people more than fools. I swore daily at people, threatened and frightened. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. I once was lost, but now I'm found. That's the truth. You have a choice, ladies and gentlemen. I beg you. Choose wisely. You could have a glorious life. Thank you very, very much for listening. Thank you for your patience. I ain't even looked at the clock. Oh, no, it's not bad. (laughs) Thank you.